Will you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4? Proverbs chapter 4. And each week we provide an outline so you can follow along with the morning message. Those of you in the auditorium, those are available at the main doors as you, you come in. So if you missed that, then feel free to, to grab one of those. Certainly next week, uh, try to remember that that's where they are. Those watching by live stream, you do have a button next to or underneath your media player that says outline and you can obtain it that way. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs that has eight sections to the entire 31 chapters that comprise Proverbs. We're in the first of those eight sections. It's an introduction that goes through chapter 9, and that introduction contains 10 lectures, 10 lectures from a father to a son on the issue of wisdom, and these lectures then in turn set the foundation for the rest of the book's short sayings, the things we normally think of when we think of Proverbs. Today we're going to be looking at the sixth and the seventh of those ten lessons. The very first of those lessons was back in chapter 1. It started in chapter 1 and verse 8, where the father told the son, listen to my words. And then in the second of those lessons, in chapter 2 and verse 1, he began by saying, not only listen, but son, accept, receive the things that I'm telling you. And then the third of those lessons, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, went beyond that. It's not just listen and accept, not just listen and receive, but you need to rehearse what it is I'm telling you regularly. Lesson 4 was the last portion of chapter 3, and it told us what wisdom is worth and what it is that wisdom accomplishes. And then last week, we saw the fifth of these ten lessons. In the first nine verses of chapter 4, wisdom's benefit to all generations. Today now, we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 4, two lessons, and these are both related, and that's why I'm covering them both together. The first of these lessons, lesson number six, tells us to choose the path of wisdom. And then the next, the seventh lesson, warns us to not allow ourselves to veer off of that chosen path. So let's bow before the Lord now and ask Him to help us as we look at His Word. Father, we thank You for the privilege of gathering as Your people, gathering in Your presence, gathering before You, having Your Word opened in front of us. We ask You to help us, Lord. We always need Your aid. Lord, we ask You to help us to put aside the distractions that all of us have the potential distractions, things that our, our minds could veer off to and think about when we need to focus upon your truth. So help us to do that, to have attentive minds. Help us to have open hearts to your truth so that we leave different than we came, better equipped to serve and please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I say, first of all, in today's outline, that the wise choose the right path. The wise choose the right path. There are three distinct lessons in this fourth chapter of Proverbs. They each start in similar fashion, calling the student to listen and to pay attention. So last week in verse 1, with the first of these three lessons that are in chapter 4, in verse 1, the father says, listen to a father's instruction. And now today we're going to see another lesson, lesson number 6, but a second one in chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Listen, my son. And then after that, 
there's a third lesson in this chapter, verse 20. My son, pay attention. So that's how these three are marked off. Listen, my son. Pay attention to, to what I say. Three different spots. Verse 1, verse 10, and verse 20. Now when I say that wise choose the right path, it's choose the right path of life. And we know that that's what Proverbs chapter 4 is telling us because the words used in the 10 verses that comprise this sixth lesson are all about one's course of life. So in verse 11, it's about the way, it says, of wisdom. Also in verse 11, it's about the paths that you take. In verse 12, it's about the steps you take. In verses 14 and 18, it mentions your paths again. And along your way, as you traverse your path, you, according to verse 12, walk and you run. And at the end of verse 12, it talks about the possibility of stumbling. Same thing at the end of verse 16. Verse 15 speaks of traveling, turning, and going. So that's why I say here then, the wise choose the right path. And when we say choose the right path, it's the right path of life. Because that's what those words are signifying. And they do so. The wise do so. They choose the right path of life because, I say in the outline, they see its benefits. Verse 10. Listen, my son. Accept what I say. And the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom, and I lead you along straight paths. Verses 10 and 11 emphasizes from whom this instruction comes, namely, your father. Because it says, listen, my son, to what I say. I, your father, and by extension, your mother, we, your parents. And then in verse 11, I instruct you, son. Last week's lesson from the father to the son showed the son that what his father is now teaching is what he, the father, had received from his own father, so that there's a track record of success. The father is sure that his son's going to benefit because he, the father, has already benefited himself. So he's confident in what he's saying. Son, you should listen and accept because of who is saying it to you. That's a confident parent. And parents, we, if we are Christian parents, guided by God's word, we should be confident parents. Now, a confident parent need not be a cocky or arrogant parent. Because the confidence comes from the ultimate source of the teaching, namely God. Going all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So I, the parent, we parents, we're not groping around for what to do or what to tell our, our children to do. God has spoken, and presumably we have listened and we've accepted, and now we're passing on to our children to do the same. The father, the, the teacher here, speaks with authority in verse 11, leading the student by what he says. It's not this. It's not he's leading as in he's, as in he's guiding him by taking him by the hand, and it's just that the father is with him as the son goes through a process of self-discovery. Yikes. Self-discovery. Be careful. 
Listen, parents, your children need your guidance. They need your instruction. You don't say they're just, they're just flowers that just need to grow in their, in their own way. We're going to see later in the book of Proverbs, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, God's Word says. That's why they need to be, to be guided, not just go through self-discovery. No, the Father is saying, this is a well-worn and proven path that you follow. And there is a path, there is a lifestyle that you also are to avoid. Verse 11 has the singular, the way of wisdom, but it also has plural paths. Meaning this, wisdom will guide you in the right direction on the many aspects of life. Because you're not going to create for yourself obstacles, but instead you're going to follow in the steps of those who have gone before you. The benefits of following this wisdom include quantity of life. Verse 10 says your life will be many years. You're not going to do things that are going to unnecessarily harm you and shorten your life. Your life will be many years, but also the quality of that life is seen in beginning in verse 12. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Now, verse 12 starts to speak of the son's life, his walk. Notice, in verses 10 and 11, it's son, this is what I'm telling you, the father. But now in verse, now in verse 12, this is the son's life, this is the son's walk. When you walk, your steps, when you run, you will not stumble. He will go through life on a road traveled by others, a proven, a straight, and therefore a safe road. Whatever it is that he encounters, he'll face it with a worldview that he inherited, but he now puts to use in his own life. He can go through life with confidence. He'll not be hampered by sin and distractions toward lesser things. He can run, as it were. Running as opposed to walking would normally present increased risk, but the person who lives according to wisdom has no moral risk. And so evil cannot cause that person to stumble. Now, I quoted this verse from Hebrews chapter 12 last week that says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I remind you, that's verse 1 of chapter 12, so it comes on the heels of the entire 40 verses of Hebrews chapter 11 that tell us about all of these people in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that God used to carry out His purposes, and He did all of that because those people believed God. That is, they had faith in what God had said, and so they did what God told them to do. And so by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Moses, and by faith, Noah, and on it goes. And then you come to chapter 12, since we're surrounded by this group of testimonies from these kinds of people, now we each have our own race to run. Let us do what they did. Run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. But the passage says something more. Here's what the full verse in verse Hebrews 12.1 says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If we're going to do this, then we've got to throw off the stuff that hinders. 
and the sin. Now, the word that's translated everything that hinders, the Greek word onkos, and we get oncology from it. It refers to a mass, a growth, a cancer that weighs us down on our path. But this thing that weighs us down and keeps us from running as we would otherwise be able is not necessarily sin because notice it says there, throw off the weight, throw off the mass, the cancer that hinders, and the sin. So you've got the things that weigh you down that are not necessarily sin. They're just what I call distractions. They're lesser things, and then there is the sin. What hinders are distractions from what's most important. And then, of course, there's the sin that tangles our feet so that we do not go through life as we otherwise could and should. And the wise have neither the distractions nor the sin. Verse 13, hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. So, verse 13, you keep hold of what I've told you. You don't stop for you don't stop running. You don't stop moving along the path of wisdom, son, student. You don't stop for contrary teaching. You be vigilant in protecting it. Now, how do you do this? How do you hold on to it? How do you keep hold of it? You do it by rehearsing it in your mind over and over. That's why I asked Pastor Larry to read for us from Psalm number one today as our scripture reading. I remind you of a portion of that. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. How do I hold on to it? <laughs> That's how I hold on to it. I meditate. Meditate means keep thinking about it. Keep rehearsing it. Now, in order for that to happen, in order for you to do that, it means that you have to determine that you are not going to give your mind to other things, to lesser things. You're going to remain ever aware of how precious this is so you never let your guard down. Now, it doesn't tell us in this chapter of chapter 4 what the right path for life is. It just describes that this life, this pathway, is the far better alternative. The specifics are going to come later in the book of Proverbs. And so the wise choose the right path for their life. And they do so because they see its benefits and because, I say, they see its alternative. We only see how bad the alternative is when we first see how good wisdom is. And that's why the Father starts with that, seeing the benefits. And then having seen the benefits in the life of the one teaching, also through His authoritative words, that are representing faithfully God's principles, having seen that, now the student, now the son, can see the alternative for what it is, and that it's by far inferior. So the father is instructing in, in what I call positive holiness. And I did a blog on that a few weeks ago, and so I'd encourage you to read that if you haven't. But we avoid the path of evil because we desire the path of wisdom. And parents and teachers, I commend that approach to you. Not because it's my approach, it's the approach you see in Scripture. 
Verse 4, 14, after now showing you the benefits of the right path, now avoid the alternative. Verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. Verses 14 and 15 give six commands to help you stay on the right road. Six. In verse 14, here's the first command. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked. And then there's another one in verse 14. Do not walk in the way of evildoers. And then you have four more in verse 14. Or excuse me, verse 15. Avoid their way of life, verse 15. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Go on your way, which is the right way. Go on that way. So you've got the path of the wicked and the way of evildoers. Now notice the way that's worded. The path of the wicked, the way of evildoers. It's saying they got their own way. They've got their own road. (laughs) It's the evildoers' road. It's the wicked person's path. They have their own, and it ain't yours. Forgive the grammar. Son. So stay off of it. Don't put your foot on it. And the third command is to avoid. That is, you rebel against the structures and the constraints that are masquerading around you as being true and being right. Because you've got all kinds of people and all kinds of institutions and all kinds of things that are going to tell you this is the right path. Uh Uh-uh. If it's different than what I have told you based on the principles of the Lord your God, then you rebel against those structures and constraints. You don't travel on it, verse 15 says. When you see the sign that says, go this way, and it's other than the path that you're on, turn away from it. Keep going the way you've been taught. And son, you don't have to know, you don't have to travel the road to know where it leads. Because there are countless bodies at the end of that road. There are countless casualties and fatalities at the end of that road. There are people who for centuries have traveled that road. So we can tell you without you having to experience it, what's going to happen and where it leads. Countless people have done it for you, and they can tell you what's at the end. Verse 16, for, because, this is why you should do all these six things in verses 14 and 15, because they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the wine of violence. Wow. The wicked are evil-holics is what it's saying. They just got to have more. They got to have it during the day. They got to have it at night. They got to have their fix of evil, it's saying. I'm going to talk in a little bit about why this is an accurate description, because it doesn't seem so right off. But stay with it. But addictions are like this. You get trapped in an addiction. You can't seem to, to find a way out. And so in that sense, in the sense of being trapped, you're victimized. And so sometimes we speak of people who are in the throes of an addiction as as if victims. And there's a sense in which that's true. But there's another sense. 
in which there were signs along the way that said, don't go this way. And you blew through those. You see, friends, the culpability comes at the beginning. The victimhood comes at the end. But we're victims of our own choices. In the words of those great theologians, the eagles, we are all just prisoners here of our own device. The next thing you know, you're living in the Hotel California. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. But relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Now, when we read these descriptions in verses 16 and 17 about the wicked, you could say, this is not talking about anyone I know, and that may be true, thankfully, because... What it's doing is it's showing what people become when they reject wisdom and when they've come from a line of others who've done the same. That is, they're sinners in a long line of other sinners, sinners surrounded by still more with little or nothing left to mitigate its influence. Thankfully, most people are not as bad as they could be. Not because we are not all totally depraved, to use a theological term, we are. All of us come into the world that way. But we don't do all the bad things we could. We don't experience all the evil that we could carry out, thankfully. Otherwise, the planet would be unlivable. But that's because God mitigates it through His common grace. But the potential is within all human beings. And when left to degenerate, this now becomes what the evil person lives for. They're so addicted to evil that it's become a sedative by night. It's become their food and drink by day. The Mr. Hyde within them has totally overtaken Dr. Jekyll. This is what happens if you reject the way of wisdom, and especially if you're raised in a line of others who have done so, such that the cumulative effect is an entire way of life. Remember last week from verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, in that lesson of the father to the son, the benefits of wisdom are demonstrated from one generation to the next, but the consequences of wickedness do the same. I didn't say much about that last week, but it's true. We were focused last week upon the benefits of wisdom being passed on from one generation to the next. But the negative consequences of wickedness do the same thing. They're passed on from the prior generation. We've got a set of commercials out there now. I think it's Geico saying, we can't help you from becoming your parents. And they do it in a a humorous way, but the truth is it's 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 a strong, strong pull to move in the direction of the personality traits and the habits and also the morals of those who have modeled those before us. That's why in the field of psychology, family of origin is such an important topic. That's the term they use, family of origin. And they try to find out some of the things that make you tick <laughs> and make you ticked <laughs> and things you learned from other people, from your parents in in particular, in what they call your family of origin, what people experience, though, individually, a society can experience collectively. 
A person can ravage their body in sexual misadventure, turning God's good gift to an irrational distortion. And I say irrational because the illogic will be demonstrated in the unworkability of it. But once an individual and then once a society collectively goes down that road, goes down that path, there's no turning back. Friends, we're on the verge of that right now in our society. And people are going to have to try to figure out what are we going to do about, like, who gets to go to what bathroom? And who gets to play in which sports? And all of this is completely unworkable. Because when you defy what God has clearly made and clearly designed, it's an irrational distortion. What God designed for human flourishing becomes an instrument of human degradation. And that's because, verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. We'll see in verse 19 what the path of the wicked is. But the road for the wise is doubly safe and secure. It's both free of obstacle and it's brilliantly lighted so they can see where they're going and where to place their feet. Their lives are free of evil and were evil to be present. They have the light to be able to see it immediately. That's why the Bible tells us in Psalm 119 famously, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. When verse 18 says the life of the righteous shines brighter until the full light of day, it's saying it's always morning for the Christian. The righteous are like the light of the morning that keeps on increasing, not like the light of the afternoon, which is constantly diminishing. Stop and think about that. That's the privilege into which you've been called. If you walk in the light of God's truth and the wisdom that He gives. But verse 19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Without the moral light of either conscience within them or of revelation from God outside of them, then they do not know the cause of their demise because they see no connection between their sin and where it led. If you got no conscience left and you got no revelation from God that you're listening to, then how are you going to make that connection? And they can't. I say you've got no conscience left. The Bible teaches that a conscience, everybody comes into this world with a conscience given by God. The conscience can be worn away ultimately be seared. I've attended, I've even officiated at the funerals of very young people who pursued the world's form of life, in quotes, only to find that it led for them to death, in their case, premature death. Now, you would think that their friends would see the connection. What we've been doing led to that. You would think they would see the connection. But what's been startling to me is that almost to a person, they see no cause and effect. They're asking why. They're asking me why. They're asking God why. 
Yet all the while, God has told them why, but they and their contemporaries have blown through the warning signs, and they don't see the connection between the sin and the consequence. It's not just alcohol and partying and sex that kills. Other vices that lead to a slow death and the world fails to see the connections, yes, between STDs and sexual immorality, between indulgent greed and national debt, between war and tribal thinking. The wicked, the Bible is saying, cannot see the connection, and as a result, they continue on the path and die. And you can see the contrast between the wise and the wicked in one word in this lesson. It's the word stumble, which means to, to trip up. Look at verse 12. The wise will not stumble. They will not be tripped up. In verse 16, the wicked will not rest until they make someone stumble, until they trip them up. And now this last verse in the lesson, verse 19, the sin of the wicked is so disorienting that they do not know what has tripped them up. The wise can't be tripped up. The foolish try to trip others up. And in the end, it's they who stumble and are tripped up and don't know why. The wise choose the right path, and I say, the wise remain on the right path. Now, this is a new lecture from the Father, and you'll be glad to know a shorter one. It's a new lecture from the father, the teacher to the son, the student, and it builds on this previous lesson. So son, student, beloved one, direct your life as you've heard and seen from the wise and then remain on that path all of your life. And the wise do that. They remain on the path by, first of all, internalizing truth. Verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. These verses begin what one has called the anatomy of discipleship. Because notice it mentions parts of the body. Verse 20, ears. Verse 21, sight, eyes. Verse 21 again, the heart. And then in verses 24 to 27, you have more parts of the body mentioned. Verse 24, mouth and lips. Verse 25, eyes again. Verse 26, feet. Verses 20 through 22 mention these kinds of organs of the body, the receptive organs of the body. What comes into the body, what's received by it, ears and heart take in, as does our, our sight, our eyes in terms of what we see. But then in verses 20 to 27, it mentions the active organs of the body, the mouth and the lips for speaking, the eyes for keeping direction, the feet for going. And that's why I've divided these eight verses into two sections. The first is about internalizing what we receive, focused on what we take in through our ears and eyes and heart. We bring truth, wisdom, inside by listening with our ears, reading with our eyes. You control, friends, what you hear and see for the most part. And I say for the most part because advertisers try to intrude, right? 
How do they intrude? They intrude lots of ways. One, by elevating the volume of a commercial for your ears. <laughs> you ever notice that? The volume of the commercials is louder than the program you were watching. <laughs> it's on purpose. Or by arresting your sight by putting eye-popping glitter over the fool's gold that they present. But the wise actively control what enters the heart through the ears and the eyes by way of information and stimulation. We control the information we take in, or at least we should. We do not just put on the radio at work and let the angry guy on talk radio tell you how the world works, what the latest plot is to take away your freedoms, how they, whoever they are, are keeping the truth from you, and you can only get it here, so tune in every single day for hours a day to have your mind go to mush by listening to whoever the guy is you're listening to. You control the dial. You control the volume. Control your God-given senses as a steward, an act of stewardship of those senses for God. When Solomon said, use your ears, notice he qualifies what they're to be used for, for my words. He knew that in his day that there were competing words, as they are today, but today we are bombarded with competing words that claim to be truth. And better, I would suggest to you, friends, than simply listening, generally, is reading. And that's because reading allows for sustained reflection. You're listening now, hopefully, and our ears are to be a source of truth, of intake of truth, but the more you read, the better you will evaluate what you hear. And don't cop out by saying, you know, I'm just not a reader. Well, listen, Christians don't have that option. God wrote a book, <laughs> okay? So you don't get to just say, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a reader. Don't be lazy about this, friends. No one and no thing except God and His truth has the right to your ears and eyes. You don't have to listen to the same thing day after day. You don't have to allow the commercial to shout at you. The wise remain on the right path by internalizing truth and by practicing truth. Notice the parts of the body mentioned here in verses 24 to 27, as I said earlier, are the active ones. Verse 24, keep your mouth free of perversity, keep corrupt talk from your lips, let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you, give careful thought to the paths of your feet, and be steadfast in all your ways, do not turn to the right or the left, keep your foot from evil. The mouth is mentioned first because it's the direct conduit to and from the heart. On the one hand, it's a great barometer of what's going on in the heart. Remember, Jesus said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. On the other hand, what we say affects our heart. Superficial habits of talk react on the mind so that cynical chatter, fashionable grumbles, flippancy, half-truths, barely meant in the first place, harden into well-established habits. We need to remember, friends, as we use this ability that God has given us, that words are sacred. Communication is part of the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so we censor our speech 
We're careful in what we say and in what we look at because we go in the direction of our vision. And that's why verse 25 says, keep your eyes on the way of wisdom that you've set out on. If you tune the radio or look down to text when you're driving, it's no surprise that you're going to swerve, right? But if you're on the path of wisdom, now verse 26 says to take each step on it, each decision you make in life, you do that with thought, with care, not turning to the right or the left, not being distracted by anyone or anything. When verse 27 says you don't turn to the right or the left, you will not, it's saying, turn away from the straight path if you do what was said all the way back in verse 20. In verse 27, it says, you don't turn to the right or the left. But back in verse 20, it said, do this, turn your ear to my words. If you turn your ears to the words of wisdom, you will not turn your gaze from the road of wisdom. This internalizing, this practicing of truth in verses 20 to 27 is summarized in the pivotal verse that's in the middle, verse 23. Above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The Bible teaches that everything we say and do flows from an internal motivation that it calls the heart. The heart must be fed truth, and the heart must be disciplined by that truth. But in order for any of that to happen, the heart first has to be changed. And the heart has to be changed because the Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, thanks, Pastor Ken. That's pretty hopeless. <laughs> you know, it all flows out of the heart. My heart's desperately wicked, and who can know it? But thanks be to God, the Bible says God will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What this means, friends, is it begins with, to use the fancy term, regeneration. Spiritual life, born again. That's the Spirit of God breathing new life into a spiritually dead person. But God does that. And every person who is a Christian has had that happen to them by God's grace. And you know that God is doing that in you when you are willing to bow your heart and your head before God and say, I'm a sinner. I'm somebody who could go in the direction that Proverbs chapter 4 describes. I'm a sinner, I've sinned against you, God, and I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. I ask you to apply that to me, and I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what's meant on the screen. You realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. You repent of your sin. I'm going to follow you now, God. I'm no longer going to go on my way, the way that's marked out for the wicked and evildoers, I'm going to go your way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You can do that when we pray in just a moment. Here's your take-home truth. The wise live the right way because they love the right way. 
Now, when I say that, they love the right way, I don't mean they love in the right manner, although that's true. I'm saying here, they love the right path. (laughs) They go in the right path because their heart desires that path. So that's the way they want to go. And friends, guess what? We always go in the direction of our desires. God changes our desires when we're born again. Let's bow before Him. Father, we do thank You again for gathering us, allowing us to look into Your Word and be instructed. Lord, help us now to take these words of Your servant Solomon seriously and apply them to ourselves. That we need to be people who take in truth and then live out truth. But taking in that truth means shutting out non-truth. It means being discriminating, discerning, being willing to turn lesser things away and aside and off and down. Help us, Lord, to value your truth above all else. May it saturate our hearts, thus motivate us to imitate the Lord Jesus, and thereby bring glory to you, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.